2: This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living.
3: I have nothing to worry about, and that's kind of what we really like about our lifestyle right now. We don't have any kids. We don't have any pets. We have nothing that is making us run back home to do, you know, look after the lawn or
2: cut the grass. Tori Carter just finished a 34-night cruise to Chile. Chances are, she's back on the water right now. She and her husband, Kirk, are retired. They don't pay rent, have a mortgage, buy groceries. Because, yeah, they live on cruise ships. Hi, I'm Paul Havershood. Welcome to The Cost of Living. Retiring on a cruise ship may sound like a myth, but, ahoy, people really do it. So how does the cost stack up to life on land? Also today, Canadian TV isn't flooded with U.S.-style lawyer ads. Slip and fall, you know who to call! 1 800 123 cash but when it comes to wrongful dismissal more canadians are now picking up the phone and calling a lawyer up first the world is in a race to win the knowledge economy of the future canadian tech titan jim balcili the former head of research in motion says that future is here and canada is already losing. The traditional thinking about Canada's economy is that we're hewers of wood and drawers of water. The idea being that natural resources drive our economy. Forestry, oil and gas, mining. For a long time, that worked pretty well. But the big money is now in the knowledge economy. To win in that world, we need to be hewers of ideas. And right now, we're not winning. Just look at Canada's economic productivity. You can draw a straight line between productivity and how much money we make. We'll soon rank last among the OECD's 38 countries. Canadian governments have struggled to boost productivity for decades. Jim Balsillie says it's because the powers that be don't really understand the problem. He once ran one of the world's biggest tech companies. And he says winning in the knowledge economy comes back to ideas. Not just who has them. But who owns them? Hi, Jim. Pleasure to be with you, Paul. Jim, this isn't the first interview you've given about Canada's lack of productivity. Why do you think productivity is so important?
0: Well, it, very simply, uh, you hit the nail on the head. If, uh, As Paul Krugman famously said, uh, productivity isn't uh, everything but over a long period of time... It is everything. And for 20 years, I've been cautioning if we don't update our approaches, it's going to come crashing on our ability to pay for our country and make ends meet at the, at the family and household.
2: Well, there are a lot of explanations for Canada's lagging productivity. You've called some of these ideas outdated. If you were to sum up the conventional thinking around this in Canada,
0: what is it? Well, it's very simple. Uh, Fundamentally, in the tangible production economy, the traditional making of things, it works by a set of rules and and, and policies, and Canada did those. We liberalized markets, labor, and products with free trade and, and efficiency structures for the tangible production economy. But the ideas economy, which it used to be 17% of the standard and poor's 500, and it's now 92% in climbing, works in the exact opposite way. It works by restriction and forcing people to pay you a rent. And we have no policies to properly participate in that. Our, our playbook was only for the traditional economy, which was good for that. But as the world moved to an ideas economy over the last 45, 35 years, We didn't update our playbook. And that lack of updating perfectly links to the time our productivity started and prosperity started eroding.
2: Okay, when you talk about the ideas economy, when you talk about companies and Canadian companies benefiting from that, you're talking about intellectual property, yeah?
0: Well, I talked about companies but also citizens benefiting from it. Yes, I'm talking about intellectual property and data, yes.
2: And so what are we not doing then with intellectual property that you think
0: we should be doing? We don't teach how to manage intellectual property in the corporate environment. We don't put conditions on our research like other countries do to benefit. We have no research. When we do our research funding, we don't link it to uh, economic benefits for Canada, unlike the rest of the world. So we had fundamental battery IP Dalhousie did that they gave to Tesla. We have fundamental AI uh, IP from U of T given to uh, Google all kinds of universities across Canada were transferring the intellectual property of joint research to Huawei. Um, all kinds of university research transferred to Uber and then they shut down their R&D in Canada. It, it's the norm. I think it's something like 75% of the IP filed in these realms are go to foreign parties. So no other country does that when they come up with an idea that the taxpayer fund, they have strategies to keep it in to the economic benefit of the country whereas canada took a shall we say a hands-off approach and ideas works on smart hands-on so the tangible production economy is smart hands-off the ideas economy is smart hands-on uh we ran a two-legged race with one leg and and so we were hopping instead of running and we're very good hoppers but we you can't beat a runner so
2: what you're saying here is is part of Canada's productivity, a big part of Canada's productivity issue comes back to this not locking up IP. When we talk about productivity, and it's been a big conversation for a long, long time, as you know, there's any number of reasons that get given for why Canada is not productive. We we don't have an innovative culture. Our companies don't invest in technology. Maybe it's taxes. Maybe it's we don't allow foreign ownership. There's this idea that it's it's cultural. You know, we're not the risk-taking, raw meat-eating entrepreneurial Americans You've heard all of these. If you think about that cultural one, is there, it is there, does that hold any water for you?
0: It's unsubstantiated garbage and it's an excuse made by those that have no other understanding for how it works. Can- Canadians start businesses at the second highest rate in the world next to uh, Americans. We are risk takers. The issue is our policy puts wind in their face, not at their back, and and so th- you have to understand how the economy works. You have to understand how other countries create sophisticated p- public private relationships to uh, come forward and and thrive in this. And those are fundamentally absent in Canada. And so and so making up all these false myths of complacency, failure to invest, and all that. I've yet to meet in my career somebody that says, oh, I don't want to grow my profits this year, or a sales rep that says, oh, I don't want to make more sales, or a fund manager that says, oh, I don't want higher returns for my fund. Everybody goes to bed every night sweating. How do they perform better no matter what the business? So this myth of complacency is, is flawed. Our policy apparatus has made it so that it's not smart to invest in ideas much of the time in Canada to the degree other nations do because of the policy framework. And that's why you see our pension funds investing much more in tech outside of Canada than in Canada because it's not the investment opportunity because of the policy preconditions.
2: So what do you think when you see the Canadian government giving billions to Stellantis and Volkswagen for EV plans?
0: Well, I think you need to do them with the proper economic analysis. So we have trouble seeing that. But we're seeing there's not as many jobs as we thought there were. They're not as high-paying what we thought they were. And most importantly, there is no strategy for the insertion of Canadian IP into it so that we get the wealth effects. So all these other countries are going, oh, boy, we bring our own you know, machine companies and all our own IP, and we get to entrench it in Canada. We get to move it offshore for cheaper taxation. And then Canada subsidizes them for relatively low-wage jobs and creating a low tax base. So I, I think if we're going to spend those dollars, I think we could do them in ways where we could capture much more economic benefit when we're at it to drive up our GDP per capita. But I think this approach is institutionalizing a low productivity.
2: Well, what about Canadian companies that are successful? Like you think about Canadian mining, you think tech. But I saw you mention recently that tech has only filed something like seven patents in the last eight years. You look at the global mining industry in that time, it's like 90,000. Why is a tech not filing for more patents?
0: I think it's that's because our traditional business community missed the shift because it wasn't in our education system. It wasn't in our board of directors training. It wasn't in our policy apparatus. So we just carried on the playbook for traditional br- production economy you know if if techs filed seven patents and 90,000 have been filed in their sector in the last 10 years they're not in a position to value added products and, and processes unless they paid most of the profits to the keeper of that some large group of big companies in mining decided they were going to spend vast sums of time and money to generate 90,000 patents <laughs> China's filed Almost four hundred thousand patents in AI over the last few years. The world is playing a claiming, owning, predatory ideas rent game here, and it's not a it's not a collegial game. It's a winner take all. It's win loss. It's predatory, and if you l- read what I read, I'm simply saying the structure of six, for success in the in the. Economy of the last thirty years has changed, and we have to update our understanding and toolkit. And 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 that's what I'm trying to address in what I'm 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 advocating for here. Well, how dire
2: is this for Canada right now, then, Jim? Because you're talking about China filing forty thousand patents for AI. Well, that is done. Like, has this ship sailed? Is it locked in for us?
0: I said four hundred thousand patents for
2: excuse uh, me, four hundred thousand patents for AI.
0: No, we need to smarten up. Like, we have to stop repeating old tropes. We need to update our approaches. So, can we fix it? Absolutely. Can we turn this ship around? I think we can turn it around pretty quickly. We have the talent, we have the people, we have the opportunity. Uh, So, I think we have to do it as the most urgent public policy priority when it comes to the economy. Uh, but we have to start doing it now. It would have been you know the old the old expression the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago the second best time is now. Canada would be a hundred billion dollars more prosperous per year had we done these things on a timely basis because that's our erosion in productivity during the shift era if you factored into our economy to date so it's time to catch up
2: yeah you know, why are you why are you fighting this fight? Um, you could you know sail off into the
0: sunset. Well, on a bad day, don't ask me that question. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, like all of us, we love our country. And there's a lot of great people that do great things, volunteering at food banks and, and helping different people in different ways. And the moral code is you carry the load you think you can handle. This is something I think I can handle. I, I know what I'm talking about. I know what's consequential. And uh, it's, you know, the moral code is... Leave a campsite better than you found it. So lots of people do this. We all care about our country. Lots of people do good things. This is something I can do.
2: Well, Jim Balzilli, thanks for, uh, thanks for all that.
0: Pleasure's mine. Great to talk to you, Paul.
2: Jim Balzilli is the founder of the Center for International Governance Innovation and the former co-CEO of Research in Motion. This is The Cost of Living, on your radio, by podcast, and on Sirius Channel 169. I'm Paul Habershrud. The questions behind retirement math are often the same. What are your savings? How much will you have coming in, going out? How long will the money last? But not everyone does the paint-by-numbers version. Some people sell the house, pull up anchor, and cruise into the sunset. Like, literally Cruise. It's a real choice some retirees make. How affordable is it? Our senior shuffleboard correspondent, Daniel Nerman, looked into the financial realities of life at sea.
3: Looking out at the water every single morning, I can see the birds. I might catch a glimpse of a whale going by.
4: Tori Carter is sailing down the coast of Brazil. Next week, she'll be in Hawaii. Then New Zealand, Australia... New Caledonia, Vanuatu, Indonesia, Hong Kong, Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Sri Lanka. Whew, there's more, but I'll stop there. A year ago, Tori and her husband Kirk sold their house in Brighton, Ontario, put everything in storage, and started living on cruise ships.
3: We don't have any kids, we don't have any pets. We have nothing that is making us run back home to do, you know, look after the lawn or cut the grass.
4: In one year, they boarded 15 ships and visited 78 countries. This is their retirement plan.
3: I have nothing to worry about. And that's kind of what we really like
4: about our lifestyle right now. You've probably heard this before. Retired couples trading it all in for life on the high seas. And maybe you've wondered, what does that cost? (laughs) Tina Dowd is with Vacations for Canadians, a travel agency that specializes in cruises. And she says there's something for almost every budget. So, I did a little bit of research, and I was
5: able to find some cruises just over a hundred dollars Canadian per day for a couple. So, for two people, so you could live on the cruise ship for just over three thousand dollars a month,
4: that gets you all your meals and all the entertainment on board, like pools, zip lines, bumper cars, and <laughs> but a hundred bucks a day, is not luxury cruising. You and your boo will be sleeping in an interior cabin. No windows, no balcony. Also, the scenery could be a bit boring. The cheapest ships are going from one continent to another, which means long days staring at the ocean. If you want to settle in for a while, you can stay on the same ship. But that could also get a bit same-same. Because Some ships just go Barcelona to Athens and then from Athens to Barcelona and then just continue to do that all summer. That's not the one you want to be on. (laughs) If you feel the need to uh, jump ship, you may have to travel to another port. Tina Dowd says that's when things can get complicated and costly. You need your flights, your transfers. Uh, We typically recommend that you go in at least a
5: day ahead so that you don't miss the ships and now you've got a hotel and food for costs. So it
4: definitely does add up. For most couples, life at sea is going to cost a lot more than three grand a month. Unless you can afford hundreds of thousands of dollars for a medical emergency, You're going to want travel insurance. Then there's day-to-day expenses like cell phone plans, Wi-Fi, laundry, and drinks. And when I say drinks, I don't just mean margaritas.
3: On the ship I'm on right now, you have to pay for a glass of water.
4: Now, Tori didn't want to say how much it costs for her and Kirk to live on cruise ships, but it's more than $100 a night. They say they worked hard to retire in their early 50s. They love traveling, and they're doing it in a way that fits their budget. Well, I was just in Chile.
3: We did a 34-night cruise, and I know how much I paid, and there were people who paid thousands of dollars less than me
4: and thousands of dollars more than me. For The Cost of Living, I'm Danielle Nerman.
2: On your radio and by podcast, this is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Havershrood. The U.S., famously, is more litigious than Canada. Local TV there is full of ads for lawyers. Personal injury, divorce
0: wrongful termination you are wrongfully terminated fired because of your sex race age or religion you're angry and you don't know what to do i can
2: help there are a lot of tv injury lawyers but there's only one jamie casino <laughs> i'm sure there is only one jamie casino in canada we aren't as lawyered up but our producer ellis cho says wrongful dismissal suits are climbing so, Alice, when people are getting laid off nowadays, they're not just going quietly? No. A lot of Canadians are pushing back after they're being laid off. So they think they've been wrongfully dismissed, and they're looking for what?
5: Well, they're not trying to get their job back. They're fighting for more compensation. And this is
2: happening more often?
5: Yes. I reached out to some of the biggest employment law firms across the country, and they told me they've been getting way more calls over the last couple of years.
1: We, we, we are very busy, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, terminations, uh, and yeah, it's, it's certainly been, for us and I'm sure for others that do this type of work, it's been very hectic.
5: Lior Samfuro is with one of the largest employment law firms that represents workers across the country, and his office saw 30% more wrongful dismissals in 2023 compared to the year before. Another law firm I spoke with said they have to hire more lawyers just just to keep up.
2: Why are they so busy?
5: Well, when there are more layoffs, there tends to be more wrongful dismissals. And Lior says this round of layoff packages hasn't been great.
1: I am seeing that, that termination offers, on average, are worse than what we expect them to be. Worse what than what historically they would be. So
2: why aren't companies paying up?
5: Well, Lior says a lot of companies are realizing they overhired coming out of the pandemic and with inflation and higher interest rates, they're struggling. So they're cutting back, right? Laying off employees. And he says they're trying to pay
2: out only what they have to.
1: They're able to do that because there's a lack of knowledge on behalf of employees as to what they're owed.
2: And the people who do know what's up, employment lawyers.
5: <laughs> yes. And that's where people are returning to now. A big part of the reason is that there are fewer workers belonging to unions. And those who do mostly work in the public sector. Only 15% of workers in the private sector belong to a union. Rafael Gomez is the director of the Centre for Industrial Relations at the University of Toronto. And he says we reached a bit of a tipping point where the, where the rise of the employment lawyer coincides with the decline of unions.
2: One in three workers that were used to be covered by unions, their unjust dismissal grievance procedures was handled by the union. They had their own union lawyers. To now a world where... It's only 1 in 10 that have that kind of protection. The 9 out of 10 or the 8.5 out of 10 are going to employment lawyers. And employment lawyers are seeing there's a market, there's a need, and they're filling that void. So employment lawyers are really stepping in here and they're playing this role that unions used to. What about Canadians? Are we becoming more litigious?
5: Overall, we're not more litigious. We're not suing each other like they do in the States. But in certain areas, like wrongful dismissal, yeah. Lior Samfuru, the employment lawyer, also says just because you call a lawyer doesn't mean you end up in court. He says most cases are settled before they get there. Like Miriam J. F. Shari, a dental assistant in Toronto. She'd been working at a clinic
3: for eight months when she was let go. And it was a shock for me. I mean, before Christmas. And, uh, you know, I live alone and uh, I'm divorced. I count on my job and my income. And it was a big shock. And I was crying for three hours.
2: Not a happy holiday. No. Uh, How was she treated on the way out?
3: She got
5: two weeks pay. And generally across the country, the minimum you get is one week for every year you've worked. So she got more than that. But she still had grounds for wrongful dismissal.
2: Well, yeah, you said she worked there for eight months and she felt she was owed more than two weeks? She
5: thought so. There's there's something called common law in Canada, a federal system of rules that are based on precedent. And under this common law, workers can successfully argue for more than the minimum, depending on their circumstances. Leor says it can add up to much more than what you were offered.
1: So it's very common to have an employee that may have worked for you know, six months, and that employee is let go, and they could be owed three, four, five months of severance. Uh, and, and in some cases. Depending on, you know, how senior a role and the age of the employee, the length of severance could exceed the length of employment.
2: So you may have only worked somewhere for like six months, but you could make a case for seven months of severance.
5: And that could be costly for employers. Dan Kelly is the head of the CFIB, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He says the price of wrongful dismissal claims can sometimes end up being quite high. They can be enough, in some cases, to shutter a business altogether. Uh, and, and business owners uh, really feel like they don't have a lot of cards to be played. Uh, they, they often are, are forced
1: to write big checks whether they've done anything wrong or not.
5: So think about it. A, a small business with five or ten employees and one big settlement could be a big financial hit.
2: So then why agree to the payout?
5: Because the cost of going to court could be much
2: worse. Uh, fair. We know what lawyers bill out at. Legal stuff can get really expensive. Uh, But on that score then, what about the people who've lost their jobs? They don't have paychecks, money's probably tight. How are they affording lawyers?
5: Typically, there's no charge up front. Most employment lawyers just take a cut of your settlement. And those settlements, just so you know, are not a one-size-fits-all. This is based on common law. So there's a lot of room for interpretation. If someone's trying to figure out if it's worth it to sue... Leor actually has a severance calculator on his website. It kind of helps people do the math to see what they might get. But it's not straightforward, and there's no guarantee you'll get anything.
2: Okay, well, you talked to Miriam, the dental assistant. How did this work out for her? It was worth it for her. What did she end up getting?
5: She got more than four weeks of severance, which was more than double what she was offered originally.
3: I feel feel better, you know, uh, when... Before that, I didn't know anything about these uh, kind of um, possibilities. And uh, you feel hopeless. Uh, but I didn't know that I have to educate myself about my rights. It took her a few months,
5: but she also found a new job. Well,
2: that's good. You know, Ellis, if you step back and look at what's going on in Canada's job market right now, Unemployment is taking up. It's not like we're seeing mass layoffs. But the job market has cooled off compared to where it was, and the economy is also slowing down. That could mean more business for employment lawyers. Let's hope they don't get too busy, for all our sakes. Thanks, Alice. You're welcome. That's all for this week. But if you have a question about business or the economy that's been niggling away at you, let us know. You've asked everything from why can it be more expensive to mail stuff from Saskatoon than it is from Shanghai to why does half the country drink milk from bags? Whatever your question, we'll take a crack at answering it on an upcoming show. Our number is 1-866-550-COST. That's 1-866-550-2678. Or email costofliving at cbc.ca. The show is based in Calgary. The Cost of Living is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Havertrud. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca
5: slash podcasts.